privilege to be here with you all. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Acts chapter 6. Uh, hello from, from Pastor All, everyone back home. Being, back, being here feels like it's a, it's a second home. We love Pastor Ray, Pastor Jason. We're blessed to be here. Acts chapter 6, what I want to do is I want to read through the, the first seven verses of the chapter, and we'll pray, and then we'll get into what the Lord has in store for us. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, laid hands on them, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that during this session, during this time, Lord, that you would, in fact, uh, give us our portion. Lord, we thank you for what has already been spoken. Lord, we pray that it take root in our hearts. Lord, as we leave here and the enemy would seek to snatch the seed from our hearts, Lord, we pray that you would uh, just grant us faith and a simple obedience in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes in this session together, uh, the theme, the title that was given to me is Holding Ground in the Church. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about the culture. We've talked about uh, the world, the government, everything that's taking place. But I think what is uh, of utmost importance today is that we consider our calling, our role, into what the Lord has called us into, and that is into the body of Christ. I love the theme of the conference, the, th the theme being occupy until he comes. To occupy means to, to hold space and to, to do business. This should be an encouraging word to you. Because you, amongst the body of Christ, whether you are a part of uh, this church or you come from another fellowship, uh, you have a space to occupy. You have ground to hold in the body of Christ. Alan Redpath once said, a Christian may have a saved soul but a wasted life. There's a difference between holding your ground and taking up space in the church. It's important that we note that. You must uh, realize what you're a part of. Sometimes we can come into the congregation, we can come into the sanctuary, and we can kind of do it flippantly. Like, this is where we come on Sunday, this is where we come on Wednesday. I see, see a lot of young men here. Uh, maybe you're here because your father brought you here. But it's important to know what you're a part of. Uh, to hold ground in the church, you must have a proper view of the church. The church is not a social club. We understand that, right? The church is not a social club. The church is the body of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that the church is the pillar and it is the ground of truth. The church exists to bring glory to God and display the power, the person, and the purpose of Christ to a lost and a dying world. Jesus said, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew Henry is quoted for saying, the church shall survive the world and be in bliss when this world is in ruins. God has called us out of this world and he has called us into something. Not so that we could hide within a building, but that so we can occupy a space within the building, hold ground and gain ground, make disciples for the cause of Christ. God has a purpose for your life and that, that is the truth that, that changed my life forever. I understood the truth of the gospel. I knew I was a sinner. I gave my life to Christ, but when I began to to, to properly understand that I was created for something more, that God has a, a divine purpose for my life. He has fashioned me for a reason. My heart became set on finding that reason out. Your Christian life will be just as empty as your life before Christ if you don't know what your gifts are, if you don't know what your calling is, if you're not fulfilling your purpose in Christ, you're missing out, as Alan Redpath said. You may have a saved soul, but a wasted life. Our church, the church, is the preserving force in the world. We are the salt that preserves the dead and decaying world. We are the only thing that is holding back the complete wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. We're the salt of the world, we're, we're the light of the world, we illuminate the darkness uh, that is so present around us. I took you to the book of Acts for uh, a very specific reason. The church was birthed in the book of Acts. I remember what the, what the Lord told the disciples in, in Acts chapter 1, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me that John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He told them in Acts chapter one and verse eight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth. So there they were. They were waiting in the upper room. And on, in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day, day of Pentecost. Uh, Peter stands up and he preaches. And 3,000 souls were added to the church. Revival is taking place. God's men are gaining ground amongst God's people. The Spirit of God is moving. He's anointing men to preach the gospel. They're seeing the power of the gospel at work in people's lives to free them from, from bondage, to free them from sin, and call them out of darkness and into the light. And the church is growing, and God is moving. At the end of Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 through 45, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided among all as many as need. Chapter 3 takes place. We see Peter and John raise up the lame man at the gate of the temple. 
God was moving in power in the early church. The word of God was going forth. Lives were being changed. Many were being converted. The early church was marked by revival and signs and wonders. But one overwhelming theme that runs through the entirety of the book of Acts is the reality of persecution. Sometimes we, want, we say we want a, a book of Acts church. We want to see Holy Spirit revival. We want to see lives change but we haven't counted the cost of what that may mean. From chapter four through the end of the book, churches were planted, people were saved, miracles were performed, but Christians were also persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and martyred. It's important to note that wherever God is seeking to build and bless, the enemy is always trying to divide and destroy. Wherever God is seeking to build and bless, The enemy is seeking to divide and destroy. The enemy couldn't destroy or divide the church from without, so he started to make his inroads from within the church in chapter 5. The enemy attempted to sow seeds of hypocrisy into the body of Christ through through Ananias and Sapphira and lying to the Holy Spirit. But the book of Isaiah says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard. And the Holy Spirit revealed the hypocrisy to Peter and gave him a word of knowledge, and the sin was purged in the church. Which brings us to chapter 6. In chapter 6, the enemy seeks to use another tactic. He seeks to sow seeds of division amongst the body of Christ. And what we're going to see in our text today is how God uses spirit-filled men to distinguish the attacks of the enemy and hold their ground within the church and gain ground for Christ in the world. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, now, in those days, when the, multitude, excuse me, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Notice what's taking place right now. The, the church is growing, but problems were arising. In Acts chapter 4, the Bible tells us that many of the church sold their possessions. They laid the money at the apostles' feet. The Hellenists were these uh, Jews who followed Grecian culture, and they felt as if the Jews who followed the Hebrew culture were getting preferential treatment, and division was taking place amongst them. But I want to highlight what the apostles do next. Notice what they don't do. They don't allow the the division to go unchecked. They're strong leaders. They're men of God. A need was made known to them. They're realizing that people are being neglected amongst the body of Christ. They're discerning the temperature of the flock. Which brings me to our first point. If we're going to hold ground within the body of Christ, if we're going to hold ground in the church, we need to be able to see the need. Sometimes we wait too long for the need, for the pastor to see the need. When the Lord puts the need in front of you, And he calls us at times to meet these needs. Notice how they respond, these apostles. They don't ignore the need, they meet the need. Verse 2, it says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples, and, and underline this in your Bibles if you take notes. They said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. If we're going to hold ground within the church, we need to know our calling. 
The disciples knew their calling. They said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It's not that they were above serving tables, not at all. They knew what, it, they knew what servant leadership meant, but they knew their calling. The apostles knew the importance of, of the, their own faithfulness to the task of distributing God's word. They knew that the means in which the church would grow was the proper exposition of the entirety of the, of the word of God. And if they would forsake their calling, it would hinder the church's maturity, it would hinder the, the, the church's fruitfulness. They were called to feed the flock spiritually. Why was this important to these men? Because they knew the enemy was at work. They knew that the church was facing, though the church was growing, though the church was being blessed, they knew that they were in enemy-occupied territory. They've been called to feed the flock. A malnourished Christian is easy prey for the enemy. And if the apostles forsook that calling, then the church at large would be the worse off for it. The growth and the maturity of these new believers was contingent upon the apostles' faithfulness to their commitment to the word of God, which is important to note. Because just because a need arises doesn't mean you're the one that's called to meet it. There's always going to be needs. But do you know your calling? They didn't allow the need to consume them and pull them away from what the Lord had been calling them to do. But another mark of a good leader is they were willing to give away opportunity. They didn't try to, to hoard uh, position of authority. They didn't, they, didn't, uh, they didn't view their position as apostles as if it was contingent upon how many good deeds they did within the church and how many offices they held within the church. No, they knew their calling. They knew what they were called to do. They saw the need and they were willing to give opportunity away to others to help meet that need, to help to, to use their spiritual gifts. What transpires next is a work of the Holy Spirit imparting a word of wisdom to the apostles and showing them how to meet this need. They weren't relying upon their own intellect. They were simple men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to know as we navigate through this text is that they didn't compromise their standard of leadership when they chose people to meet this need. Take note of this. The moment that the church begins to compromise on the qualifications of leadership, the strength of the leadership begins to erode. And what do we know to be true? Everything rises and falls on leadership. Waiting tables was not considered a small task to the apostles. There is no small task in the kingdom of God. What you should be saying when you come into your church in your own prayer life, Lord, I want to know what you've called me to. I want to know the gifts that you've imparted to my life. Lord, show me a need. Open a door for me. I want to serve you. I want to be a part of the work. I want to hold ground in the church. I want to be a part of a work of God that is, that is gaining ground in the enemy's territory. I want to spend a majority of the rest of our time in verse 3 in developing this point here because I believe it's crucial. If you're gonna feel a need in the church, if you're gonna hold ground in the church, you must meet the standard. I must meet the standard. There is a standard of leadership in the scriptures. Notice verse three. 
It says, Therefore, brethren, this is apostles telling them, they saw the need, they identified the need, they, they already said, we can't leave our calling to meet this need, so let's do this. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. This is encouraging to me because the Holy Spirit is, is overseeing the church. He supplied the wisdom needed. But notice the standard that God sets forth. Look at verse 3 again with me. It says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you, highlight this, seven men. They were supposed to seek out people from among them, not from outside of them, but from among them. And they were to choose seven men. In the Bible, the role of leadership among God's people was always assigned to men. If you're a man here, which I don't see any women here, you've been called to this role of leadership. There is a place of leadership for you in some capacity within the body of Christ. Remember Jethro's advice to Moses? Moses is being worn out in Exodus 18 and, and trying to, feed, uh, to, to fill all these needs amongst, amongst the people of God and trying to service all of these complaints. And Jethro comes to him and gives him a word from God and he tells him, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men. In 1 Timothy 3, the roles of leadership in the church were given to men. Throughout Scripture, God asked men to act like men. You heard uh, Pastor Ken mention it in Job 38, when, when Job is going back and forth with the Lord. In Job 38.3, he says, Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Before David was getting ready to pass off the scene, and he was going to uh, give the the kingdom to his son Solomon. The first thing he says to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Solomon, I, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to die, Solomon. I'm putting you in this position of leadership. You're going to rule the, the kingdom. Be strong and prove yourself like a man. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, and be strong. I'm encouraged by this truth in the Bible because the Bible says in, in, in um, Ezekiel twenty two thirty that God seeks a man. Ezekiel twenty two thirty says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. And here's the tragedy. He says, but I found none. From heaven, the Lord was looking down upon his people and he was seeking a man. He was seeking a man who would stand in the gap and he couldn't find a single man. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that there wasn't one that he could find that was willing to intercede, that was willing to hold ground amongst the people of God. God is seeking a man. And in our text, God is seeking men in the, in the early church, in the book of Acts, to fill this need. But what I'm really interested in is the character these men needed to possess. Look at verse 3 again. It says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. All of these qualifications 
are, you can't order them from one to, one to three. They're all equal importance. You can't have one without the other. They're all connected. But these men were to be seven men of good reputation. They were to be men, the men who were to be chosen were to be chosen because they were men of character. The, the apostles knew the men who were chosen had to be people that they could trust. They weren't looking for eloquent men. They weren't looking for talented men. They were looking for men of integrity. And you may walk into the church and you say, oh, may be able to say, what do I really have to offer? I'm not very talented. I don't really possess a ton of spiritual gifts. I don't even know my spiritual gifts. But do you have character? And are you working to build your character? Because character takes, integrity takes a lifetime to build, but in a moment, the enemy can destroy it. You, you, you take, take, take seriously the calling to protect your character, and God will take care of the sphere of your influence. But we like to flip it. We want to say, I want to be influential. I want to, I want to impact people's lives. I want to be under the lights. I want to be behind the microphone. I want to be in front of people. Do you realize nothing, none of that matters if you don't have t- character? Do you realize that nothing that you do in the name of Christ for the cause of Jesus matters if you're not a man of good reputation? If a man is charismatic, but he lacks character, he's not an asset asset to the work of God, but he's actually a liability. He's not a benefit, he's a hindrance. Character has always been the first biblical requirement when choosing leaders. Take note of these verses. The men that God asked Moses to choose in Exodus 18 again, he says, moreover, you shall select from among you, from all the people, able men, notice, such as fear God, men of truth, men who hate covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. This was the standard for the priests and the Levites in Deuteronomy 18. In verse 13, the Lord said, you shall, be, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. If you're going to serve in the temple, if you're going to serve amongst my people, if you're going to serve in the tabernacle, you must be blameless. The standard for the leaders in the early church, bear with me, it's a lengthy portion of scripture, but, but I'm going to read it because I think it's important in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you should know it by heart. If you have a calling, if you sense a calling to serve in any capacity in ministry, if we compromise on these standards in our lives, there will be no power in our lives. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 6 says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with hip- not lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. 
Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. If you want to hold ground in the church, you must seek to be men who are above reproach. You must seek to be men who are men of integrity. The word integrity is an interesting word. It literally means the state of being whole and undivided. You have one mission and one task, and that's pleasing the Lord in your thought life, in the way you conduct yourself amongst the body of Christ, in the way you conduct yourself in your marriage, in the way that you conduct yourself in the home. Not a perfect man, but a blameless man. A man, when someone throws an accusation at you, it doesn't stick because they know your character. No man has integrity without a personal passion to holiness. We've lost this message in the pulpits today. We've lost the importance of holiness. Probably because it's been removed from the pulpit, so it's been removed from the lives of the people. Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, take heed to yourself. Before you can shepherd the flock, Timothy, take heed to yourself. He told his last words to the Ephesian elders on the beach of, of, my, of Miletus was in Acts 20, 28. He says, therefore, take heed to yourself. Jesus told the disciples on the Mount of Olives after he told them how the end times are going to unfold. He said, but take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. Take heed to yourself. Pay special attention to your character, to the things that pertain to the culture of the inner man. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Lectures to My Students, if you don't have a copy, you should get a copy. In the first chapter, it's titled The Minister's Self-Watch. He says this, We are, in a certain sense, our own tools and therefore must keep ourselves in order. If I want to preach the gospel, I can only use my own voice. Therefore, I must train my vocal powers. I can only think with my own brains and feel with my own heart. And therefore, I must educate my intellectual and emotional faculties. I can only weep and agonize for souls in my own renewed nature. Therefore, I must, must I watchfully maintain the tenderness which was in Christ Jesus. It will be in vain for me to stock up my library or organize societies or, or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. My own spirit, soul, and body are my nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties in my inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. McShane, writing to the, a ministerial friend who was traveling with a view to per, of perfecting himself in the German tongue, used language identical with our own. I know you will apply hard to German, but don't forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently a cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity 
and perfection of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. And that is our calling, to be men of good reputation, men of character, men of integrity, men who have a passion for holiness, who take heed to ourselves so we could effectively minister to the body of Christ. Look at again, verse 3 says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Carnal man can't do spiritual work. You can't be full of the Holy Spirit and full of anything else. Right in Romans 8, uh, verses 5 through 6, Paul told the church, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. What is the condition of your mind here this morning? To what do you give your attention to? What are you allowing your eyes to see? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that the lamp of the body is the eye. If the eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? When Ezekiel was prophesying against the, the, the leaders of, his, of God's people who had been carried away captive in Babylon, his rebuke to them was that your eyes have played the harlot with other gods. Therefore, your hearts have departed from me. We aren't going to be spiritual men if we're not wise with what we put before our eyes. Paul again, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, to be fleshly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The men that were to be chosen in the book of Acts were men who were, who were to be um, full of the Holy Spirit, but the fruits of the Holy Spirit were to be evident in their life. They were to be men who were full of love, men who were full of joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. They were to be self-controlled men. These fruits were to be evident in their lives. But not only the fruits, but the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were to be active in their lives. These were to be men that you were able to look from a distance and see, I know this man's gifting. I know this man's calling. The Lord has called him to something. You and I will never bear fruit or operate in the power of the Holy Spirit unless you are completely yielded. Are you completely yielded? The Bible says in the book of Galatians, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Here's a news flash, a biblical truth. You don't have to sin. God has provided everything to us that pertains to life and godliness. You have the power to overcome sin and to live a life of victory. That is the message of the gospel. That is what God has called us into in this promised land. Oh, there's going to be giants. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be battles. But we have been 
filled with, baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit, and all you have to do is ask and believe and walk in the power of the Spirit. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians, see then that you walk circumspectly. It literally means to like walk on a tightrope or to, to walk through a minefield that any, any one wrong step in the wrong direction could, could take your life. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And do not be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 3 again, that these are to be men of a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. These men were not to uh, just be spiritually minded men, but they were to be practically minded men. Their wisdom was to be evident and already at work. If we want to hold ground in the church, we must be wise men. We must seek to be wise men. Paul, when he was praying for the Colossians in Colossians 1.9, he says, I don't cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But if we're going to be filled with wisdom, we need to know what wisdom is. And I love Oswald Sanders' definition of it in his book, Spiritual Leadership. I quote, he says, If knowledge is the accumulation of facts and intellect, the development of reason, wisdom is heavenly discernment. It is insight into the heart of things. Wisdom involves knowing God and the subtleties of the human heart. More than knowledge, it is the right application of knowledge in moral and spiritual matters and handling dilemmas and in negotiating complex relationships. Now that we know what wisdom is and we need to be men of wisdom, how is it obtained? I think a majority of my life is spent realizing how little wisdom I possess and how desperately I need the wisdom of God. We need wisdom of God to hold ground in the church. We need wisdom, the wisdom of God to hold ground in our marriages. We need the wisdom of God to hold ground in our home. We need the wisdom of God to operate in our daily lives. But the great hope that Scripture puts forth to us is that the wisdom of God is made available. And God is not a respecter of man's persons. You're in a difficult situation in your life right now. Wisdom is made available. If knowledge comes through the study of God's Word, then wisdom comes through this filling of the Holy Spirit. But only a humble man can possess the wisdom of God. Right? James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, so there must be this acknowledgement of this great lack that I have in my own resources. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. Notice, and without reproach, and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Ask God for wisdom and trust that he will give it to you. Humble men fear God. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. He goes on. Let's wrap up verse 3. He says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, Notice this, who we may appoint, this is important to note, who we may appoint over this business. The Hellenists were supposed to choose these men, 
but the final decision rested in the hands of the apostles. It was the role and the responsibility of the present leadership to appoint future leadership. And they were faithful to that calling. It was the role and the responsibility of the present leadership to appoint future leadership, and they were faithful to that. And notice what's gonna happen to the church because of their faithfulness. He says in verse four, the apostles are saying, but we will give ourselves I love the order in which this goes, and we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They made their calling a priority without neglecting the needs of the body. We've established this, but notice their priority. We'll give ourselves continually to prayer. First Thessalonians in chapter five would say to pray without ceasing, never stop praying. One author would say that no man is greater than his prayer life. What the, what the church needs today is men of prayer, and the apostles were seeking to be men of prayer who gave themselves continually to the ministry of the word. It says, and the saying pleased, in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These were all Grecian men. But I want you to notice something else about these men. It's important. These men were available. They were available. They were already amongst the body. They were there. They cared. So if we're going to be men who hold ground in the church, we need to see the need. If we're going to be men who hold ground in the church, we need to know our calling and not uh, depart from that. If we're going to be men who hold ground in the church, we need to meet the standard. We need to be men of good reputation, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. But if we're going to be men who hold ground in the church, we need to be available. We need to do more than just come in and come out on a Sunday morning. These men were invested in the work. And as they were invested in the work, they displayed characteristics of a leader before they were given opportunity. They displayed characteristics of leadership before they were ever given an opportunity, before they were ever given a task, before they were ever given a title, because titles really mean nothing. They cared. They cared about the body of Christ. They cared about the work of God, so they were there. But God had great things in store for them. They weren't just always going to serve tables. You understand that? In Acts chapter 6, later on, it's going to say that Stephen was full of faith and power, and he did great wonders and signs among the people. Those tables that he served became his pulpit for one of the most, probably the most thorough sermon in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen became the first martyr in the church, and Christ stood for him. In Acts chapter 8, Philip brought about revival in Samaria and was willing to leave the revival for one man to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. 
These men were faithful men. They were faithful to be present. They were faithful to the task that was given them, and God could trust them. And notice the fruit of all this as we close. It says in verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The work of God spread. They didn't just, because they held ground, they ended up gaining ground. The word of God spread. As men, when we're serious about holding the ground the Lord has called us to, he will use us to quench the attacks of the enemy and to meet the needs of the people. When we seek to be spirit-filled men of integrity, the church that we serve in will be effective, it will glorify God, and it will reach the world for Christ. And at the end of the day, that's what we're here for, amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for your goodness in drawing us here by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would just continually bless the fellowship, bless the remainder of this day, and go before us in power. In Jesus' name.